everyone, welcome back to the Sustainable Sleepover Club podcast, which you can find on Instagram and Twitter now as well to stay updated. This time we have another fabulous guest, Saoirse Exton, who began her work as a climate activist at the age of 13 when she founded the local branch of the Fridays for Future movement in her city. Saoirse is a member of the C40 Global Youth and Mayors Forum, which creates an intergenerational conversation on the climate crisis between 14 youth activists from across the world and mayors from the world's megacities. She is currently serving her second term as a quality officer of the Irish Second Level Student Union, or ISSU, which enables her to bring student voice to the forefront of decision making in Ireland and has so many valuable insights we get to dive into in this episode. Hi Saoirse, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Great, Um, so I'll head straight in. Um, So the first question is how did you get into activism and just when did it all start? Yeah, so uh, when I was about 13 years old, or no, I think maybe 11 or 12, actually, um, during the referendum um, on uh, repealing the Eighth Amendment, um, I really wanted to to get involved in a political campaign like that. But I remember thinking at the time, I'm like way too young to be involved in anything like this. Um, And also, apparently, um, the day of the count, uh, I turned to my mother. I have no recollection of this, but this is what my mother said. Uh, I turned to her and I said, I have just had my feminist reawakening or or awakening or something. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) so from that moment on, I really, really wanted to get involved in a campaign. And then in late 2018, maybe November, I think, of 2018, my mother showed me um, a video of Australian students marching through the streets of of her hometown. And it was really amazing to see so many young people um, mobilized together. And I think like, I I didn't realize until that point that young people were able to have their own voices and could mobilize in such a way. Um, And so I really, really wanted to get involved. So I looked, I kind of scouted around looking for, if there was an Irish group and there was so I messaged them and they were like just just go for it you know um so I did uh, <laughs> and the first of March 2019 when I was 13 I started striking um and yeah I suppose from there things have just really gotten out of control um but yeah no it's it's been a really really wild ride and I suppose you know it's not like my my uh, capacity for understanding the these political issues you know just appeared out of nowhere I do think that like when I think before activism there's like a very clear definition almost in the way that I thought um from then to to now or even just after the strikes began um but you know like my family we'd always discuss things when when I was a kid um and I think just my my involvement in in that referendum just by going to the count and feeling the power of of being part of something bigger than myself I think that was really the catalyst for wanting to get involved and then when that video appeared that was like the sign that I needed so it was all it was a kind of an amalgamation of many things wow um yeah I think it was the same for me like so many things kind of added up onto each other um which I've only kind of realized on like trying to actually figure out like um, why did I get involved in activism because like not everyone does um but can you tell us a bit about your time as equality officer with the ISSU and kind of what it's taught you? Yeah, definitely. 
So um, I think it was in May 2020, honestly, I've lost track of time, when I was elected as, as a quality officer for the ICSU. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been a really interesting experience because it's a very different type of activism to Fridays for Future. It's a lot less about grassroots activism and a lot more about legislative you know, reform and working with the government um, or rather reforming the government as best we can. Um, and I suppose I was really drawn to it because, first of all, you know, I think that that if there is many youth groups around the country, and I thought this when I when I ran, if there are many youth groups around the country, it's really important that that we band together against the climate crisis and other youth um, involved issues. Um, and so I really, really wanted to see, you know, how can I contribute to that to that discussion? Um, so I I ran for quality officer, and amazingly, somehow I got it. Um, and I suppose, yeah, I mean. Although I felt a lot of imposter syndrome for my first year because I felt really, um, I didn't feel ready, I suppose. Um, like I said, it's a very, very different form of activism. It's a very different form of, of everything. And I think it was quite, it's quite high, um, high, not high stakes, but high energy, high tension. And I just didn't feel able. But, uh, you know, I remember in my last couple of months, I, I decided I kind of came up with an idea to do the accessibility guidelines, which was basically just getting a bunch of, of compiling a bunch of research that was relevant to uh, to the Irish Second Level Students Union and creating it into a guidelines document. And, you know, when I worked in that, I sort of realized that um, I realized a lot about myself. I realized that I was capable and that I didn't need to wait on anyone else. And I realized that... Uh, I wanted to rerun <laughs> um, and I also realized that I suppose you know when it comes to if you want to get information out there that is already available there's always a space for making accessible information um, in an accessible area so like the the document for instance is, is something that you can easily reference um, it's clearly laid out it's in clearly you know um, it's an easily easy to understand, easy to comprehend language. And it's like you can do that and that there's a there's a clear space for that, especially within, you know, academic research and legislation rather than because most people aren't going to have the time or the capacity to look things up on the Internet. And if they do, if it's in legislative languages, it can be very difficult to read. So there's a massive space for that kind of interpretation. Um, and so that was kind of my first year. Um, and then my second year, well, I'm still in the midst of it now, um, has been a lot more about, I suppose, just going with the flow um, and understanding that that I'm not someone who really works with a plan. Even if I make one, I don't follow it. Um, and that, that's OK. <laughs> uh, so it's been really, really awesome this year. Um, just developing the projects uh, and I've, I've also learned a lot about legislative language um, and how much I hate it but also how much you have to use it to be respected so you know using these this fancy eloquent words um, I've also learned a lot about how terrible the government is in terms of equality issues like absolutely disgustingly terrible you know like I had no I had no idea when I first began as a quality officer that, that for instance, there's only two genders recognised by the state. Um, and I had no idea that about just how bad direct provision was. Um, and I had, I had no idea about a whole range of issues. Um, and I really start, started to realise through my role that, you know, the close connection between 
um, climate change or the climate crisis and air, you know, issues of, of equality. Um, and, and I suppose that's climate justice at the end of the day. Um, and I suppose so that, yeah, uh, that kind of connection between between environmental uh, justice and social justice was really important to to me, both as a quality officer and as a climate activist. That's really interesting, actually, in terms of like what your time with the ICC was taught you, because I related to a lot of that with actually like this podcast, like in terms of kind of trying like something like sustainability, you can look up online and there's a million different things that are kind of come up you know and for a lot of people they're not going to do that it's going to be like boring to a lot of people and like a lot of people actually just won't understand because it'd be like the UN sustainable development goals and stuff and I think like with the podcast is just trying to make that accessible like a sleepover and just like a chat between friends that kind of people want to listen to um and also like through doing this and just chatting to like the other people in the podcast you kind of do make those links between all these different like because if people are going to care about so many issues like people just don't like you're not going to do that but it's like finding that there's links between like direct provision and climate change and all these different things um so yeah that was actually really interesting I was like yeah yeah (laughs) as I was listening to you um but with the upcoming leaving search and how it's been handled in terms of COVID and everything, um, have you any thoughts as a student advocating for student voice? And I know the ISSU is obviously a really big part of it. Yeah, I mean, that's really, really difficult because I think it's a tricky situation. Mm. Uh, you know, as a fifth year student, I can't possibly understand what, what doing the leaving cert is like, and I won't until next year. <laughs> um, so I don't really know exactly exactly what needs to be done. I don't have an answer because on one hand, you know, I'm I'm quite worried about COVID myself, despite the fact that that I have the privilege of, of um, having a booster. Um, you know, and so I don't really want to attend school at the moment. But at the same time, I understand that that there are people that need to. Um, and so in terms of, of locking down um, on schools, I just, I don't really know what to do there. Um, and yeah, in ter- I don't know, that's that's a difficult question because, you know, I mean, there's so many sides to that question. Um, it's like, you know, what do we allow to be in person? What do we not allow to be in person? How do we shorten papers? So I think the, the, the key takeaway from this, the thing that we really need to look at is, this is a time of crises for every student. This is just a universal time of crisis. But what about the students that in a normal year are going through a time of crisis themselves? What about students who are grieving um, a family member or uh, have a terminal illness or just can't complete examinations on the day? The processes for putting off those exams, as far as I'm aware, are, are really difficult um, and have a huge lack of empathy. And I think that's something we need to examine. Um, and I think another thing, the biggest thing is how broken the education system is. Like, that's another thing that I've learned through ISSU, just how mm. bad it is. Um, like, you know, it was really weird and, and, and strange returning to school after after a year basically off. Um, you know, I didn't really go to school in TY. Um, and in fifth year, when I came back, like just realizing how useless a lot of the information that we learn in school is. Um, and even when it is useful, we're not explained why. Um, like one of the things I hate the most is that in the education system, 
you're told to learn something and then you're not told the usefulness of that or the applications of that in the real world. Um, and so these concepts that are really important, um, let's say in, in, in maths or something, um, are not, they, they don't stick in, in my head, for instance, because I don't understand them properly. I understand how to complete a sum when it's given to me, but I couldn't explain to you, let's say, why the formula for finding the volume of a cone is that formula or who came up with that formula. You know, that's just not something that's important to the education system. And so, I mean, like I said, I don't have an answer. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know what to say in, in that regard because it is a very tricky situation. But this situation has revealed to us that there is a deeper problem here. Um, and yeah, I... I could go again, I could go on about how just how damaging the education system is. It's not just that it's terrible. It's that it actively causes a regression, um, in my belief, in, in, in intellectual advancement. Um, and it actively destroys people's um, mental health and, and contributes to so much anxiety. Um, and this, I think, perpetuates any like mental health crises that people might be going through that I was mentioning earlier mm -hmm. in terms of examinations. And so it's just, it's a terrible, terrible system. And it doesn't really measure like ability in any way, shape or form. Like a good example is how for the past three years I've been an activist, but that doesn't come into any account in any of my subjects. It's not a gradable thing that I've done. So therefore, it's irrelevant. So we're really just numbers and I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. And I think like it shows us that even in this time of crisis and like the fact that it's leaving certs who will be sitting the leaving cert and even in this time of COVID and the pandemic, the government like didn't consult students on the decision that was going to be made around the leaving cert, whatever it is that leaving cert, which again, I can't speak for whatever it is that they want but they didn't consult with them and the students union I know did um but it wasn't taken up by the government um and still hasn't been yet um so I think that but I think that's a bigger problem that the actual education system doesn't serve students which is exactly who it's supposed to serve and just in general like you were saying about like as you said like how difficult it is to like wiggle room I suppose with the exams and any situation it's also like very inaccessible to a lot of people in terms of accessibility and people with disabilities and stuff like that and it really as you said only sees people as a number and as this one way of thinking which is not we don't all think the same we don't all have the same interests um and yeah it's it, I think that's a good answer in terms of actually like um it's just it's just so telling at like for every year even before COVID um so moving on a bit um can you tell us a bit about why the Irish language is important to you and I'm asking because I know it is <laughs> yeah I mean uh I think before I started activism I really disliked the Irish language not the language objectively but just the subject and for me the subject as for many people was really closely associated with the language Although I still really dislike the subject, um, I think the language is really important because um, 
it's 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 native it is our language it's it's it's, an, it's native to this area um and i think one of the really really key ways that this is important is the, the fact the way how the language almost molds and, and shapes the landscape so i read a book recently called irish in ecology um which was a bilingual book it was very very caused cool. by michael cronin i would recommend it um and Basically, in the book, it discussed how the language of Ireland and the sort of the long system of oppressing and erasing, uh, erasing that language by colonialism, by the current um, government and education system, um, uh, among many, many other things, has also erased our connection with the land. Um, and so basically what that means is that where once the land that we look at might have had character, it now is you know, almost as monolith because the language that we speak in this country is not for this land. It is, does not describe this land. It is not native to this land. And Irish does that. It provides um, uh, a language that for the past, re recorded only for the past about 3000 years, but has been here for much longer or some form of it has been here for much longer. Um, you know, it over those years, it has developed a very close relationship with the things around us. So, you know, maybe there are little anecdotal stories about how um, certain uh, certain herbs or something are poisonous, um, or maybe it's simply that that you know, just by the word that someone uses for a certain type of field, um, we can tell what to use that for. Um, or even if it's just the stories, the stories of the land, um, the characters um, of myth that existed in them. Um, and I think this connection is something that we've lost as a society because of col colonialism. And then now uh, in this kind of neo-colonialism of, of globalism, we um, or globalization, we have sort of nullified um our uniqueness i suppose um because basically like although i think it's really important to recognize our similarities as the human race and to recognize how what unites us um there's also many things that set us apart and i and that is beautiful and we need to recognize our differences as well as our similarities um and that in the end is what what will unify the, the human race as a whole because we recognize the cultural beauty and significance of, of every culture on the planet and every language. Um, and we stop this, this idea of, of colonialism and the superiority of one language. Because you know, by, by recognizing all of us as the same, we have to also recognize that there should be a default language or a default people. And that's really harmful. And I think another thing as well is that, you know, often Irish people are painted in this this monolith of, of being part of Europe. And although we are continentally European, we are at the same time different from the other cultures. Um, and we have to, like, this is what I'm saying, in essence, diversity isn't just the fact that people are set apart. Um, it's it's the fact that that we are all so, so different, um, both as individuals and, and culturally. Um, and I think it's really sad to see the way that the, the Irish government continues to treat the land um, and especially the way that it treats its people. Because, like, for instance, I read a book recently by Anna Parnell, who was an um, Irish revolutionary. She was the sister of Charles Stuart Parnell, who's much more famous. Um, 
um, but he was he was kind of horrible. Um, and it's a really interesting book because basically she became head of the Ladies Land League, um, and she after the Land League was sent to prison, the Ladies Land League basically did all of the work that the Land League is now accredited for, almost all of it anyway. Um, and then when Charles Stuart Parnell got out of prison, he basically took credit for all of it. Um, and Anna Parnell was was left to just deal with with the anger and the bitterness of having been sidelined because she was a woman. Um, but the key part of this book is the way that the Irish landowners um, treated the Irish tenant farmers. And we're exactly replicating the situation now. And the reason I'm referring to this is that is because I think it ties directly into the way that we treat our planet. This sort of ability to say to kick people off their off their land, whether they own it or not, a home is your land, um, and to to sort of justify it with with this very capitalist way of looking at the world, it's it's very sickening to see this replicated by Irish people towards Irish people because of our history, um, and like it's just it's horrible because we have the privilege of knowing so much about our culture of having a language that is still very much alive where that we can use to describe our culture and yet the government is actively working against this amazing resource that we have purely and simply because they want to keep in place this very rigid system of of grab 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 until there's nothing left so I just think Irish language, as any other indigenous language, really ties into. Yeah, I think that like that connection between Irish um, to history and nature is absolutely fascinating. And I think another point you were making is about how, you know, um, like no like culture is exactly the same and likewise like no body is exactly the same no like way to look no language like we need to stop like trying to create an ideal for everything because there will all like the majority of people will be outside that um and just generally we need to move away um from that way of thinking um so just kind of like end on kind of more climate justice note um we were like I I find this crazy we the first time we met and the only time we've met in person was not in Ireland but in Glasgow in a different country because that's what you would do so much simpler um but in Glasgow for COP26 can you tell me a bit about your biggest takeaways um from those two weeks and beyond and before and after it um yeah good and or bad um (laughs) Yeah, I mean, people often ask me, like, to say a good thing about it, and I don't really have anything to say. Um, It was really, really amazing to be among so many like-minded people. I'm really emotional because you don't really get anything like that, like, anywhere else. And so it was, like, I think on the last day of of COP, there was a big protest, and a bunch of us just started chanting, and and it was just, it was so amazing um, and so, so powerful um and the biggest thing was that we were all united in the fact that that we all believed in one thing and that was achieving climate justice and so that was probably the really positive thing about it the negatives are far too many to uh, go into um but basically you know i think two key things that taught me was that um no matter how many like corporate events there are going to be you know governments and companies are never going to change 
like I think I already knew that but like it was really solidified by this event you know I found out afterwards that um COP26 actually polluted more than COP25 um <laughs> so it had more um carbon emissions which I just absolutely love that that I find that hilarious um and I also one of the things that I thought was it was really funny how they were kind of making a festival out of the end of the world um and also how inaccessible and elitist the united nations is um and by extension when something is elitist to some people it's going to tend to be a bit racist and um sexist and all those stuff and so of course that's what happened um and the sort of you know for the first time in my life and this is a privilege i've grown up with i was terrified of police officers because i'm a young person I'm a young girl in a foreign city um, and you know it was so it was just so intimidating to see a bunch of police officers like hundreds of them waiting outside the door every day with guns um, and it was just it was it was terrifying um, as <laughs> it was terrifying and threatening and all types of things. COP26 also taught me a lot about Fridays the Future as a movement um, and I think uh, it's very interesting because people often forget that we are we were all kids when we joined the movement um, and some of us are still kids um, and so I think it's very very interesting to see the way that Fridays for Future is almost a microcosm of politics and of the sort of the turmoil of being a teenager at school. I feel like Fridays for Future is just that but like multiplied <laughs> and it's very interesting to see that in a very stressful environment. And, and I, I think it's really like for me, one of the big reasons why I join a lot of activist groups is because I like to be able to know, to see the benefits and the, the disadvantages of these groups um, and sort of advise other groups that I then help to create or join by saying, look, this didn't work out. And it's, just, it's really, really interesting to see Fridays for Future because that for me was like where it all started. Um, and yeah, I just, I found that very, very interesting to see in person. Cause I obviously, I had seen it like two years before, but I'm a very different person um, to who I was when I was 14, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us. And you kind of just like wrapped it up there by like bringing us from the beginning to the end all over again um so thank you so much it's been wonder wonderful and interesting and fascinating um so yeah thank you thank you so much <laughs> bye hi everyone so welcome back we just had an amazing chat with Sirsha. um so to get us started with the fun question um okay what is your favorite fruit worth a go um definitely red no not red apples i hate red apples green apples or strawberry i'm gonna say that there is nothing wrong with red apples um but i do agree with you on the strawberries um i like myself a red apple but strawberries are amazing and they are gorgeous mm -hmm. and they deserve to be acknowledged as such i love strawberries but especially strawberries dipped in chocolate um <laughs> But I'm going to go with my favourite fruit at the moment, which is probably cherries. But my favourite fruit changes, like, all the time. Um, Ayushi? Indian summer mangoes. Not Irish mangoes, I won't lie. Don't, they kind of suck. Indian <laughs> summer mangoes. 
are absolutely divine. And I think this is kind of biased because I am just craving them right now. Because I really want something sweet and I can't find a single sweet thing in the house. But our Indian summer mangoes are divine. I really want to try one now. I love mango sorbet. Like mango sorbet is so good. Like there's no other sorbet that's as good as mango sorbet ever. Mm. Oh my God. Also, pineapples. Pineapple sorbet Mm. as well. Also smoothies. Also smoothie bowls. I love smoothie bowls. I'm going to read a controversial point in pineapples and say that they do belong on pizzas. Yeah. I'm going to say yeah, a controversial view and say pineapples don't belong anywhere. <laughs> you don't like pineapples? <laughs> no, despise it. Oh! I'm going to like mail a bunch of pineapples to your house tomorrow. Did you guys know that when you eat Did you guys know that? When you eat pineapples, they also eat you back. They've got a digestive enzyme in them, don't they? Yeah. Wait, there's an explain this. That wait. basically eats the... Okay, so pineapples are, like, they have a digestive enzyme in them, and the enzyme attacks amylase in the enzyme in your in your saliva and basically eats your gums when you're eating them. And that's why your medicines and making cancer stories from eating pineapple. See, another reason to dislike pineapples. But they're so good. It tastes so good. That's why I love sour things. I love when they cut your tongue and you can't eat anymore. It's so good. I love when you have sour sweets and you literally suck them until your mouth bleeds and it's so good. I love sour things. So eat you massages. <laughs> no, I just love sour. Like I literally, it's the worst thing ever. Like, I'm so bad. Like I literally will like be in pain. I'm like, but I love sour things. Like it's so bad. Like, I, like you know what else really cuts your tongue is like, um, like those like crisps that are like, mm-hmm. like they're not like crisps. They're like puffy crisps. Like puffy crisps, that makes sense. I haven't think about it. Like meanies. And they're like puffy and they cut your mouth. But I will literally keep eating them. I don't know what it is. I just, Holy. and like the next day I regret it like a lot. But like, I don't know. In the moment, I'm just like, well, who cares? I'm already like there. So why not just like keep it? They cut your mouth. They literally cut your mouth. I'm not kidding. If you suck on them, they cut your mouth. And I'm like, this is actual facts. Meanies. <laughs> <laughs> they're puffy. Like, what do you want to do? Like, but then I can't do things. <laughs> you concern me so much. Do you know that? <laughs> okay what did you all think like what stood out to you from the interview with Saoirse we love a Gwail Gorm (laughs) Gabby's in love we started to talk about Irish and I was like yes yes Saoirse go girl give us everything um yeah I'm gonna get a little spawn out here because um she was well it's not a spawn we're not sponsored guys but you know I'm gonna promote it anyway uh she was talking about like Irish language and the origins and how it has like how it kind of talks about the country Mm -hmm. and there's a book I'm not finished reading it yet but it's called 32 words for a field 32 words for a field apologies and it is so good and it's all about how to do like Irish words that we've lost and how they related to and the land and how we had like different words for different fields depending mm. on what the field was for and what the field did and I love it I love all that about linguistics but especially about Irish because I think it's really important to hold on to that part of our culture and that part of our identity so go read that it's really good <laughs> I definitely agree like I think this my dad always said to me when he he he's a teacher and uh, as a teacher like even though he is just art <laughs> you have to do Irish like for if you want to teach in college even like he's doing teacher science school at City College but he had to spend like a few months at a well tuck like uh, basically like a well cost check kind of thing but obviously not for like students 
Um, and he said that like after like he really didn't have a lot of Irish and he obviously played his goal, but like, he didn't have a lot of Irish. But after a while he started to like, dream in Irish <laughs> in his sleep. So he was still like a Martin language. But he always he said something and it really like stuck at me. It's like when he was there, he said the language looked like the landscape. And that's what Sirsha said. Like it is so true. Like the Irish landscape, like the ruggedness of it is so like identical identical I can't think of the word I like identifies with the land like the, yeah. the coast and the landscape and the ruggedness of the landscape and like the rough language like that kind of like harsh sounds like really guttural sounding and like the fact that like a lot of our words do come from like as I was said fields and landscapes like our, our like our background has primarily always been like so connected to nature and like even art as well like the same thing there's an artist like uh, Paul Henry and like he was became known for like painting like the most Irish of Irish places. Like he painted the West of Ireland, the Kill Islands, and all this stuff. And, and his art emphasizes like kind of nature, not just Irish like landscape, but also people who like lived there and worked there, and how they almost like again like emphasize the landscape. Like it's very connected to like the country, I guess. Yeah. I think like generally if we become disconnected from nature like of course we're gonna have like we're gonna like if we can't be connected to nature and still exploit it and still you know seek to like make it a monoculture and all these things so like the fact I think in so many ways Irish is our connection to our land and to our landscape and I think it's just like really interesting like the fact that even we as humans are nature but we've so disconnected ourselves as this like dominant species that's so above like like mother nature and stuff like this compared to like as Saoirse was saying again like our history where we were one with the land and we like knew how to like forage and things like this and I think like just the fact that we've become so disconnected from that and it could be to do with the fact that we're also disconnected from Irish I think it's just like really rooting ourselves back in like nature whenever we're talking about things like climate justice and moving forward and creating better futures for people Mm. yeah Yeah, no definitely I think it's kind of I suppose I think Irish it's I think it's a pity how Irish is viewed in Ireland as a language you know because um, Amy's right like I mean Irish the language itself is living history um, because it, it comes from a time where we had all those connections to nature. We had all these connections to the land. There are words that we don't use anymore, words that only exist in Irish that specifically relate to specific parts of nature and things like that. Mm. You know, but it's really sad because I suppose Saoirse was talking about her views of kind of like even like the Irish um curriculum and Irish in school and the fact that she doesn't like um Irish in school you know which I think is really tragic because it says a lot about I suppose the the way that you know and obviously this isn't teachers fault because teachers teach the curriculum but Mm -hmm. it says a lot about the way that we teach Irish in this country in that like students aren't taught Irish to speak Irish you know um and if we don't if we don't speak a language you know, eventually it dies out. Do you know what I mean? Because that's that's the everyday usage of the language, I think, regardless of, and it is important to be able to read and write in a language as well, but regardless of whether or not you can read and write in a language, the fact that we don't speak Irish in Ireland, I think is really sad. It's such a gorgeous language and it's filled with so much history and we, we don't really use it in large in a l- large part of the country. Um, yeah. And I'll be honest, like, I don't 
like I don't love go, like going to Irish class or like more than any other subject like you know above anything else and like I wouldn't say that I'm amazing at it um or anything like that because I don't know anyone who speaks Irish so I'm like really basing the Irish I know off of school um which is is probably quite telling to the fact that I'm like just not very good at it even if I try at like at the moment obviously continue um but like even with like I just think the fact that we don't teach like we don't teach students to love like the language you don't teach it like as our heritage despite that being the fact that we are still going we have it as a mandatory subject even though we don't really learn it in the right way and I think like there's problems with how it's taught more so like than the language itself I think that like says a lot because like I really am fascinated by Irish and I love it and I love like the connection to Ireland but even at that I, I'm just not very good at Irish and I don't like the subject and I think that disconnect between schools and even as she was she was talking about the education system generally and the actual subjects is really interesting and it's really failing people yeah mm-hmm. I like I'm in someone like I, I would love I always say I would love to speak Irish like fluently but it's well it's really hard language to learn okay I'm putting out there it actually is hard language to learn because of the whole like you know what gets me it's um not even like the verbs and stuff it's like every other word is like changed by the word in front of it like do you know what I mean that makes sense like to again like because I just don't get that but like it definitely is a lot to do with like the curriculum like I mean the like in in the 1920s like in Ireland like that's when Irish like education system like began like when we have today and it's the same one like Irish was introduced like as a compulsory subject in 1922 and it's still a compulsory subject like how many years later do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, for me, I've always said that I think that if Irish was compulsory up until the point where you chose it for your leaving cert, I think mm-hmm. we'd have a better Irish standard in this country. And this may be controversial, but picture this. You do Irish until whatever leaving cert year, and then it's one of your options. People who really love Irish and want to learn Irish will choose the Irish language to learn, right, as their subject. Leaving people who don't really care about it, just not have to learn it and not have to do it. Therefore, the curriculum doesn't have to be as like accessible as it is now because it's the curriculum has been watered down to a point because they know people don't like learning Irish. So it's become to a point where you can learn things off and get through it. It hasn't become about the language at all. It's become about like just getting through it for a lot of people who just don't care about learning Irish. But I think that if it was an optional subject, like then they could make it a lot more about the, like the history of our language, like the stories and the, and the culture and make it a lot more speaking and a lot less like exam ready sense like it would be a lot more focused on actually speaking the language rather than it being just getting through the exam you know I think like I get what you're saying I would I would love to be able to agree with you here Eve but I think part of the problem is that we don't view languages as an advantage here in Ireland really you know and I think I mean obviously Ireland was colonized so English is predominantly spoken as a first language you know other European countries have retained their um they're kind of their maternal languages, so to speak. Um, and I think because of that, there's it's nearly seen as more important in other European countries to learn other languages because it's seen as such an advantage to have English. Um, yeah. Because English is used so widely around the world. It's, it's the first language spoken in America. It's used a lot in terms of business and stuff. So there's a lot more emphasis, I think, put on learning second and third languages and that the advantage that they can give you in life and whereas I think here in Ireland it's nearly kind of like a 
a half-hearted effort. Yeah. Like, everyone speaks English fluently. And then we have Irish, but we don't teach it very well. And then we require a third language for a lot of second-level university subjects. But the way we teach third languages here in Ireland you can come away with it and like just n- not be able yeah. to speak the language at yeah. all. Do you know what I mean? You know, yeah. it's taught to a very, very basic degree. Um, but like personally, I think the thing with Irish is that I feel like I understand what Eva's saying about make it optional, but I feel like that would only work if we actually taught Irish to a better degree from a younger age. Like I think this needs to start in primary schools personally. Eva was talking about the Tisho Ginnaduck. Which is a rule oh that changes the spelling in Irish, and that is personally something that I had no idea this really existed until I was about 16, 17. and I struggled so much. And like spelling isn't necessarily a strong point with me in any language, but I struggled extra hard in Irish, trying to not be able to understand why I couldn't spell words correctly. And then I learned that the spellings change, you know. Um, and I mean, the Tishkinatuk is all to do with the gender of the words. So like, if you learn French. You learn en or une before the word, and you know if it's masculine or feminine. And obviously, there's no word for a in Irish, but we could learn the words with the in front of them. So, like, you know, certain feminine words then would take a chez vous with the, you know, or masculine words might take it if they begin with a vowel. So, we're learning the gender of the word subconsciously. And I feel like it would make grammar rules like that so much easier earlier on, so much easier later on. Like, I do feel like they need to be incorporated earlier on because that's how you learn English. You don't learn English going, this is grammar rule one, two, and three. Yeah. You just know it intrinsically. mm, I kind of agree more so with Eve, but kind of like a combination of your points because I think I personally think that we should learn it up to like you know junior cert kind of age like level um but that for leaving cert it should not be mandatory because it seriously brings down people's points and people are only learning it as an exam subject there isn't there apart from the orals there's no word of Irish spoken you know once like for leaving cert like it's just not the way that people learn it but I think that the reason I think that it shouldn't be mandatory and we should be we should still do it up till junior sir because I think if that was the case then we could teach it the way that Gabby was talking about orally and from primary school like because in primary school we didn't talk we didn't really talk it either and maybe that was just my primary school I didn't go to a girl school or anything um, and same in junior sir because it's still all prepping you for leaving search so all of those it's not spoken it's not a language it's not about the culture it's not about the history and so much of Ireland's history is taught like is through um, like if you're looking at oral history through Irish and it's not focused on that because it's still even though it's really early on it's all like bringing you forward to leaving cert so I know we need to teach it differently for it to be not mandatory in leaving cert but I think making it not mandatory would allow that to happen personally I agree like I think like 100% like languages are taught through speaking right that's how you learn a language so you learn it until you're born you know what I mean and the fact is like when I was in school and primary school, so like Irish was not like, I mean, obviously we did Irish in the day, but it just was, I didn't go to girls' school. It was just part of our curriculum. And it was all to do with just like learning enough Irish to get you through to the next stage. Do you know what I mean? Like there was a phrase in our school and it was like tables and third, verbs and fifth. So like, it was learn the time tables and third class and your ver- Irish verbs in fifth class. And like that will do you for secondary school. Like that's all you need. Do you know what I mean? That was kind of the like idea I was like, just get through it's about learning at the end of the day. That's what it was for me throughout my entire school career until this year. The past two years, I've had an Irish teacher who is brilliant. And 
for the first time, I actually like can understand what's going on in class and can understand what she's saying. And even last year, I couldn't. But this year, I'm kind of catching on because she is a big fan of the Irish oral. So for those who don't know, the Irish oral leaving start takes up about 40% of the paper. There's 600 marks overall and 240 that goes to the oral. It's a massive part of the paper. And my teacher basically is known for getting very good grades and always focuses on oral first because obviously it's so important. And it's actually quite easy to get high marks in because if you can speak Irish and talk your way through the oral, you get a good grade. Like if the main thing the grade you want is like how well you can just talk, keep going, keep going, keep going. You know what I mean? <laughs> but um, like... I from like fifth year, even the start of fifth year to my last exams, my Christmas exams this year, like I've gone up from a H6 to a H3 with not much study, <laughs> just from being in her classroom, like, and just like from, I guess, focusing on stuff like the oral and like actually focusing on how to like form basic sentences. Like she really has like this, like the idea of like, if you can know basic formation of sentences, basic errors, you don't need the fancy like, language like a lot of the notes we get from like not our school books but like from online you look up like h1 sample essays and they're really difficult language from people who went to Wales schools and well to bring costas but you can easily get like a good grade in irish if you can just have a comprehensive understanding of language to be able to form sentences like it doesn't have to be this like like super taught out like you have to know every single rule and like all the like like vocab in the world to get like good level of the Irish language if you can speak and you can hold sentences together you're on your way to like becoming like a better Irish speaker overall and that should be the goal not to just like sound fancy in the exam do you know what I mean I don't know if that makes sense it's interesting because I've got kind of two separate points here because I think Eve has nearly raised another point it's an entirety I think what you're seeing of making it non-compulsory for the leaving I understand my fear personally around that would be the same way as if, like personally, if you take the third language in my school, there's one third language offered, about a sixth of my year do it. If it was not mandatory for their for college places, for certain college courses, there might be maybe two people in the class. Like people really aren't picking languages per se because they want to do languages. So I think there's a fear around Irish that like if it was no longer mandatory, would people choose it? Now, I saw an interesting article and it was an interview. I think it might have been by, I think it was Dahi O'Shea, I'm not certain. But what he proposed was splitting it in two. So making a compulsory Irish oral class. Um, They focused mainly around speaking. There was some basic writing and grammar, but it was predominantly on speaking. And then an optional um reading and writing class right. where you could study books and you could study things like that um which I think was an interesting concept because again I do think the most important thing about the language is to actually get people speaking it but it's interesting because Eve raised the point about people looking up essays and they're really complicated Irish and I think people do that and they learn them off and again it's to yeah. do with the problem I think we have surrounding some leaving cert subjects where people are learning to regurgitate not learning to understand yes and I feel like we have that problem even in languages even in the oral people learn off these big spiels the examiner goes like Inish thump with a high lock they've, they've, they've <laughs> learned off their big thunk about their family they go through it and then they get to the next question and they go right through that again and then people are stuck if they're asked a question yeah. that they've not like learned off a script for and again yeah with the essays and I understand it because to get a good marking grammar 
you have to do it to a certain extent, but I think it's when people just learn things off blindly and they don't actually understand what they're writing at all, but they just yeah. know this is good Irish, it'll get me a mark, you know. Um, and I feel like I feel like we've a problem there, and I feel like we've a problem there surrounding other subjects as well. I think Sierra brought up maths, you know, but like kind of, and maths obviously is a subject that you nearly have to understand, you know, um, but kind of not understanding where things come from or why we do things a certain way um I think is an issue I know it's I know it's what they're trying to tackle in the new junior cert and there's a lot to be said about the new junior cert as well which is a whole other conversation um but I do think it's an issue we have regarding I suppose the current system of education through the leaving cert is that there's a lot of kind of regurgitative practice and very little comprehension going on I think I think like firstly like that potentially like just on Irish like the split way of doing it could work but my thing is like even if people really like don't take it on even after teaching it like more orally up until third year like is that really so bad if people can speak it by third year do you know people if we thought it right and we had that focus is it really so bad if people don't choose it for an exam because if we're trying to move it away from focusing on the exam I don't see I don't see that as a fallback if people can speak the language at the end of the day um so it just depends if if your goal is to keep it on if you want more people to keep it on then keep it mandatory and do what we're doing now but I don't I don't think that that should be our goal and but that's just what I was thinking yeah I want to address that point because like the reason I don't think it should be compulsory is because no one likes being told what to do I hate being told if you tell me to do something I will take the opposite (laughs) opposite thing like Irish is introduced in the mandatory subject in 922. I'm saying this again. 922. It didn't work. Most of your parents who learned Irish had to do Irish to their leaving cert cannot speak a word of Irish today. The exact same because as they did learning the language. The yeah. language became synonymous with the curriculum. And the curriculum is the curriculum because it has to cater to people who don't want to do Irish. Like if they have the curriculum at a high standard or whatever, people are going to fail the course. So they want to be able to pass the course. So they make the curriculum easier and more about learning so people can just learn things off and not have to actually learn the language. Yeah. The curriculum should be focused on speaking and not on testing, like, how well you can write an essay on, like, the poetry question. You know what I mean? Like, Cockamanus. Why Cockamanus also? Sorry. Um, <laughs> but, like, I just, I 100% think that, like, the compulsory, like, factor in the language makes people not want to study it. Like, and the same thing with the languages you were saying, Gabby. Like, well, in my school, like the language uptake is a lot higher than than that. But mm. a lot of people yeah. pick a language because I was even talking to my friends today. They pick a language because they have to have it to get in. And I, she heard someone say, "I am never speaking French after I leave the school." Like that's the way it is. Like you do a language to get like what you yeah. want, not to get whatever. And like it's so different on the countries. Like the French students that came over to our school during the French change can speak English properly fluently. Do you mm. mean like literally fluently because they have to speak English because. Obviously, conversation blah, 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 and English is a very valuable language to have. Irish isn't valuable in the way of commodity. And this is my next yeah. point. We have made our Irishness a commodity in this country. We sell out our Irishness. Like St. Patrick's Day has become a festival of like, like just tackiness. And like, I'm sorry, it has. I'm putting it there. Like, like, I feel like we market our Irishness as like a prize, like a commodity or like, it's like a tacky like thing like it shouldn't be like I feel like today with like I guess I don't even want to say Irish Americans because I feel like it's mean but like we like I remember like we literally like Grant like Tom Cruise and like that like a status of Irishness like years ago because he's like has an Irish ancestor or whatever 
like okay like joe biden visited ireland and he had irish accent but like irish just shouldn't be a commodity and i feel like the language has become like almost a commodity like in the sense that like if you want to be in the media you have to speak the irish language because like we don't have to like it's a good thing because it like show you like an irish person like loves ireland like most journalists or like people on the, on the on like rt newt or whatever or like on news talk will speak irish because they want to like kind of oh it's almost like a, and politicians as well like have like most of them speak irish because it's like a marketing ploy to speak irish rather than actually being like part of like our history and our culture and i think there's also one point i want to bring up and um I saw a girl on TikTok and she was singing a song about Ireland and her relationship with Ireland. And I thought it was so beautiful because I think a lot of people have this very disjointed like relationship with Ireland and a lot of Irish people. Like I've always loved living here and I always want to live here when I'm older. But there's a lot of things I really just don't like about this country. And I've always wanted to leave at some point. And there's a line in her song and it said, leaving's in my bones. And it kind of just really got me thinking of how connected like our history is to us today and how the Irish language contributed to that. Like the kind of the Irish language started during the famine because people started to teach their children English so that they could emigrate and yeah. work and find money. Leaving became synonymous with the language and the kind of the language. And I think a lot of Irish people still today have to emigrate to find work or you know, I know this obviously we're doing better, but like it's still... It's still, there's still people who as you like those people go to Canada, Alaska, Australia every single year. Like that's a thing. And like I feel like that does have a connection to our history of like emigration and our history of the kind of our language because we had to like sell out almost, not sell out with survival, mm. but like we had to give up our native language to like basically survive in a yeah. world that was not like written for us to be in. Does that make sense? Like yeah. that seems so dramatic. <laughs> But I think as well, like it, like Saoirse was making that point about how, like in general, we're we don't know how to embrace like diversity, which doesn't mean that we're all completely different. We still, in every country, will have similarities because we're all like the same race and we're creatures of Earth and stuff. But like we do have different things, and it's about embracing those. And as you were saying, like we nearly we had to get rid of that at one point and now we're selling what is unique about us in many ways um and I think like something like on that point that really frustrates me is when like tourists come to Ireland and stuff and they want to see like Tato Park and the Guinness factory and the tours and stuff like that um and all these like as you said to be honest quite tacky stuff when and half of them don't go and see like West Cork and the Wild Atlantic Way and like our incredible, like truly incredible nature. Um, that again, without Nate, without Irish, we still don't know how to describe fully. Um, and like, you know, Connemara and all those kind of things. Cause like they, and our mountains and our seas, like we have, and our cliffs, like we have incredible nature. Um, and I think the fact that so many tourists come, come to Dublin and will never see that is actually heartbreaking. Um, and I think just on Gabby's point as well, just the fact that like the way that English and language or Irish and languages are taught just is about regurgitation and I think that sh is reflected in every other subject and how it's a disservice to students yeah I'm just gonna see it now like if anyone who isn't Irish hears this wants to visit there's more to Ireland than Dublin <laughs> 
you know there's loads of other beautiful parts of the country and we should I feel like we should promote them more because yeah. you know um it's a gorgeous island I love Ireland you know um and we so much beautiful nature like Amy was saying um and I feel like I feel like sometimes we don't appreciate that enough um I had a point and it was about something Eve said and now I've gone oh yes Eve was talking about like wanting to go like I feel like to a certain extent look we're all young and I think it's nearly natural mm. like you leave school at one point and you want to experience something completely different mm. to what you've experienced your whole life and I feel like that's nearly natural that's how a lot of people feel you know but it's interesting because again Eve you raised a point about people going for work for opportunity yeah um, and it's to do with the Irish language as well and I feel like you encounter a problem because okay Irish mandatory at the moment in schools maybe a lot of people don't necessarily enjoy Irish uh, very much but then you encounter the problem outside of school where at least when you're in school you're in an environment where to a certain extent you nearly have to speak Irish daily you know um, or you have to work with Irish daily because you'll probably have an Irish class daily you leave school and there isn't any real kind of outside of the Gaeltocks and maybe there are some organizations that get together and they run through Irish but apart from that it is very difficult I think personally um, and this is just personal experience I don't know about anyone else but to nearly maintain Irish in your life unless mm. you come from a family that speaks Irish or you know someone who speaks Irish fluently or who teaches Irish you know and it's to do with on a, it's to do, I think there's a lot to do with employment in Irish. And I know there's kind of a push at the moment to get more employment through Irish, you know, because again, um, people, if they can't use languages in their daily life, you know, and employment is a big part of using language in their daily life because, you know, most of our employment in this country runs through English. So I think I think it's good news to a certain extent. You know I mean, I feel like it um, ensues the longevity of the language is the idea that if we are creating areas of employment that work through Irish, um, I'm not sure if that was a point, but... No, I think like all of this discussion has been so fascinating. Does anyone else have any other points? I was just thinking about like, obviously, as soon as I remember the ICU and I... Obviously, she's saying she's a fifth year and can't really speak on leaving sex, but here we go. <laughs> Here's the leaving sex for you. <laughs> and I, and I, oh, this might be controversial, but I actually, well, okay. They actually released a survey where they surveyed 18,000 students and 68.3, I think, percent said they wanted a hybrid leaving cert. Um, I'm one of those people who maybe does not want a hybrid eating cert this year. <laughs> and I just want to make sure that everyone's voice is heard because I'm hearing a lot of things on Instagram. So, I mean, 18,000 students out of 55,000 is not a great percentage, to be honest with you. Like, obviously, it's a big number, but it's not, like, amazing. But the problem with, I think, the leaving cert at the moment, and Sasha brought this up, is obviously it's focused on one day exam. So... Continuing assessment sounds like the best idea in the world, right? It really does. But it's actually not that great. And I'll explain why. Continuing assessment, I hate it, personally. I hate it since I did it in third year and we did CBAs in third year. I, I, I hate continuing assessment. It is the bane of my life because um, the pressure that you feel on one day of the year during your exam is just amplified over a certain... <laughs> it, it keeps going. There's no break. The pressure, it's test constantly it's, it's 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 pretty much constant assessments and I know last year when they were like doing the grading the advisement to teachers to predict the grades was to do up to three assessments 
So up to is the key word here because my brother or my woman teachers in school was talking about this and like how they basically like made the grades. So our school, for example, which is too far like a pretty unbiased like school, it's a community school, it's very big, very large. We have a lot of students in the school. It's and it's I think it's a really great school in the in it's the way it organizes exams and stuff. Um and our school had three assessments for every class coming up to the leaving set for the students last year, which is the top amount they could have. And they were graded equally and fairly, and that contributed to the overall grade, but did not like predict overall grades. So the overall grade was like from fifth year and sixth year work with those three assessments as like I guess a starting point. However, other schools decided to not do up to three. They did maybe one assessment or two assessments per class. And then with that, and this is true, a lot of teachers told their students what was going on in the exams so that they got higher grades. The advisement for teachers to predict grades was to give the students the best possible grade they could get on a good day of the exam, basically. So a lot of schools, particular, and this is actually a fact, this is all facts, males in wealthier areas receive overall higher grades with stricter grading than, than any of theirs in the, that we've done leading search because a lot of private schools are, particularly male private schools, get away with absolute murder. And everyone knows this. They'd be given warnings after warnings that they're like, the way they teach the leaving cert is 100% how to get the best grades in the leaving cert. It's not about learning at all. I know people who literally, I don't want to say this, but like, in art, you have to have your own work. You teach your and your principal has to have this is your own work. You cannot use any secondary resources. In our school, if you can use like a secondary resource, they're like, we're not sending off your work. This is not your own work. I know people have paid artists to do their work for their for their junior certain leaving certs. I don't like, oh. and this is this is true. Like, I understand. Like, I'm not even gonna name schools or anything, but the, the overall thing is, predicted grading is not as flawless as everyone seems to think it is. Particularly, like, I understand the idea of it, but I'm not for it. Like, even the fact that there's a choice, like, that obviously would be nice for me because I know that I would probably end up doing better, like, doing okay in predicted grading. But for everyone else, like, that's, this is not, like, a viable... This is just not viable for every year. This like we cannot have degrading every single year. The points go up massively. The amount of students who got 65 points last year and didn't get their top choices, that's not right. That's not okay. That it doesn't make sense. Degrading is not a flawless system as everyone wants to believe it is at the moment. I'm sorry. The, what I'm seeing from like a lot of organizations, including I too, is like this goal for degrading. It's not as flawless. It takes a lot, a lot of work to like actually do unbiased. And I don't think it would ever be unbiased. Your teachers are grading your work. How is that unbiased? And I don't think the exam is unbiased either because putting all your points on one day is not very fair either. But I don't think the solution is with the grading. I actually don't. And as well as that, like I know there's a school in Cork that is all girls school and it's a small school, like not that big. 11 students last year got 65 points in one year group. That's not like that's that's not normal. Do you know what I mean? That is not normal. So I just want to put that out there about predictive grading because I'm I'm kind of sick of the narrative that all students want predictive grading. When no, a lot of us don't. A lot of my friends don't. Okay, so I, I want my name, sir. I think as well. I'm gonna let Gabby speak next because she's in English. Yeah, um, but, but yeah, and Eva's as well. Um, but just in general, like with these surveys, like unless you have a really really big sample size, because we know how many students there are in the school, or sorry, in the country, um they're not to be taken like like these surveys shouldn't should never um without as i said a really big sample size um that comes back you know showing that that it shouldn't be taken as like what every student wants because even um and i think it is great that there are surveys and they're trying to represent student voice 
But like even with going back to school um, after Christmas, like obviously the big narrative that the ISSU put forward was that um, based on, again, a survey, they weren't just speaking for their own opinion, um, but that was that students didn't want to go back to school because it wasn't safe. Um, and I understood that with COVID, but I, and I know a lot of people, like I, I said that I did want to go back to school because for for many reasons um but like for my own like for myself like in many different ways but also because a lot of people if you you cannot for a lot of people just turn on um just turn on kind of at home homeschooling it doesn't work that way because people don't have the right technology people don't have family to help them people don't have their own space and technology and you can't just turn it on and so I actually don't think it's accessible to everyone so I just think it's really important um to still remember that we're not like the ICSU doesn't push every student's voice um Gabby yeah no definitely Amy I think one thing I thought was a bit mad and I saw it in the paper this weekend and it was to do with the amount of students that got 625 points in the leaving cert last year versus other years and I've literally had this conversation with like five different people in the past few days and I always ask them to guess how many it is in a regular year and how many it is how many it was last year I'm gonna ask you guys actually how many students do you think on a regular year get 625 points I don't know but like 5,000 every year out of, I think around 66,000 do it every year. So just a number. Is that the highest you can get? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I would think it'd be quite small then. Like, yeah. I don't know, Gabby. You're going to <laughs> okay. Um, I'll give you. Small. Yeah, it's small. Just literally pick any number. Amy, pick a number for this. Okay. Um, 100. Okay, yeah, you're reasonably close. It's, um, I think it's around 250 from what I remember. I don't have exact wow. numbers now. Okay, Ayushi, I'm going to pick you for the next one. How many do you think got 625 points last year? 500. Go up. Oh, oh my God. Oh God, I thought I was going extreme with doubling it, but 600. Go up. <laughs> oh, 700. Go up. Stop. 800. Keep on climbing, girl. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. 950. Approximately 1,300. Oh God, I was wow. trying to hit 1,000. That was too much. There was an wow. increase of 600%. You know, oh God, like... not normal. And that's after they bell curved. Like, they bell yeah. curved exactly. these grades. People's grades and you can't get any higher than that. Like, the CEO doesn't go up. No. <laughs> I think no wonder is, dentistry was like so extreme that you couldn't yeah, get the inflation of points. And nursing as well. Yeah. Can I just say, my heart goes out to any poor soul who had dentistry down as their first option oh, and I didn't know. get it after getting 625 points. Yeah. Like, I so feel so bad for you. That is horrifying. You can't do any more. Like, you can't even put more of yourself into that. Exam. Is it looking like the points are going to deflate or inflate? Well, that's the year? thing. With predicted grading, if they won't deflate, if, they, if we have to degrade, yeah. they're going to keep going up because it's just going to be the same way. Like the same schools are going to give the same high points to their students. Mm. And I then our schools differ. That's the way it is. It's, it's a case that it's difficult to know because like, I think the problem is predicted grading and calculated grading obviously are two different things and the first year of the pandemic we got predicted grading now I'm not an expert on any of this this is how I understand it that what happened but basically predicted grading as far as I can tell people gave let's say reasonably accurate scores as to what they think students would get they were told to give 
accurate scores and teachers give accurate scores. And then students' grades got downgraded. And obviously downgrading means that like you're not going to get the course. So then the next year, I think people kind of nearly wised on and they decided to grade people up a grade or two on the risk that they would get downgraded. Obviously, some people did get downgraded. Some people kept the grade they got. But I feel like it's led to this massive increase because an increase from 200 to 1,300 people getting 625 points within the space of two years is not natural. Like we did not just have a bunch of super geniuses born in 2000. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> like obviously there is that problem when it comes to predicted grading. And I understand the fear because like courses, any course I want to do, the points have jumped massively you know and I feel like as well I suppose now I think it depends because like obviously in relation to the course you want to do if you want to do a science and you're poor at languages and you don't get the points because you struggled with languages in the leading search where you would be capable for the science course I feel like there's kind of an imbalance there like it's difficult to say but I also have heard stories you know I've got like friends who are in their let's say first and second year of uni now and they talk with people in their courses who only got the points because of their calculated grade or their predicted grade where they've dropped out en masse because they weren't able for the course, um, even though they got the points through this. So I feel like I feel like it's a whole melting pot of like, I don't work. know, it's like it's a, I feel like it's a big mess wherever you go. You know, I understand why people want the hybrid model. I understand why people don't want the hybrid model. And I feel like students are scared that they are being graded against people from last year who deferred courses or who decided to wait for the points to go down. They're scared they're being graded against that. Um, I feel like they're scared the points will stay the same and they won't be able to get the course. You know, so I feel like there's a lot of kind of uncertainty and there's a lot of fear, you know, because it's a situation that hasn't happened before. You know, um, obviously the past the past two years and our year, we've all had similar situations, but differing, you know, um, all centered around the pandemic, obviously, but like to different varies and mm-hmm. variants and different degrees. So, yeah, I, I don't really I don't really know what to say about it. I mean, yeah. I feel like it's I feel like it's really difficult to say. It's difficult to tell what's going to happen. You know, um, no one really knows. But um but yeah, I don't know. That statistic shocked me personally. I, yeah. I thought it was insane. Oh I was like, that's a massive, massive jump. Mm-hmm. And I understand why people, I understand from that why people don't want the calculated grades to happen anymore, you know. Um, and obviously like the exam and like COVID is insane. Like people are missing so much school from COVID mm-hmm. and the exam is not the solution either. But I'm just thinking the way that predicted grades and calculated grades is being rolled out at the moment is not a fair system at all. It's just as unfair as the exam well, is. Well, like this all came in in a crisis. Like it wasn't planned. It wasn't, you know, like like this will work because we've, you know, had this like time to adapt to it and stuff like that. It came in suddenly a year in a crisis instead of the leaving cert because people had been at home. Like it wasn't ever the ideal and now we've got it. You know, it's kind of stuck. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I think this there's a the lot of new ones. Yeah. This is the time that they could reform the leaving cert to like be more efficient. Yeah. But they're just not doing that for some reason. They're just like, yeah. 
keep sticking back in the same stuff and going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We need a reform. Um, it's very obvious we need a reform, but I just don't think that predicted or calculated grading is the best option for that reform. All of this discussion has been so fascinating and just kind of to like start slowly wrapping up um, I think like instead of final messages um, someone asked this we had a question box on our like Instagram story and someone asked though because we're coming up to like a year of the podcast which is crazy probably making the logo or something this time last year um, but someone just asked like on a completely different point now just like to finish up um, what your I think was it what's your favorite moment from like the year of the podcast um so yeah that was the question and I was like oh I actually don't know what everyone else's is so I'll ask that tonight um I was trying to trying to think of mine initially I thought with the live podcast because that was like amazing like with the ambassador and stuff like that uh I have I think two um one of them and I think this will stick with me for a long time I'm gonna say it in Irish because I've just spent 40 minutes <laughs> you might have to translate but I'm about the Irish <laughs> I'm up for it though <laughs> and it was Eve um late on Ira Rua August and Ira Gloss um and that was Eve's moment with the red squirrels and the green squirrels <laughs> um which I don't think I've for a while that was our interview with the ambassador if you haven't heard it go listen it was, um, it was a fantastic well it was analogy. brought up in the ambassador interview as well we need to let that go because that was one of my <laughs> moments of the podcast well I have I have another one and I okay. think it's, it's from our first episode um when we were all really nervous and a bit scared I think mm. and it was Carol admitting that he was terrified of the <laughs> interview <laughs> 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 Oh my God. I'm sorry Carol you're not here tonight but we're being mean um but yeah I liked that moment that first episode recording remember how long we spent trying to set up <laughs> beforehand okay anyone else I can't I was gonna say Carol being scared of Harry Potter um <laughs> I don't know I think I think every time we do the podcast I get a little bit more inspired my favorite episode to this date was Mitzi from our yeah. fourth episode, I think that was when I really the podcast felt like it was doing something. Like obviously, I love the guests we've had on before that, but that was incredible for me. Like the way she spoke and the way she articulated everything so wonderfully, and her own firsthand experience that was so moving for me. Like that, I cried after that episode, like fully cried. That was yeah. that was important. Yeah, um, for podcast moment. I think for me, I probably have to say maybe like sometime over the summer because for so long we were like online and um, like we were like all in the Zoom squares and which is amazing. Like we learned so much and we got to know each other. But then I think it was so like it was a kind of it was such a weird thing like to meet up then in person because we did already know each other like we were already friends and then we met in person but it was also like a first time meeting so it's like really strange but I think it was so nice and now it's kind of hard to imagine like having been strangers and having like only met virtually and all those things so I think probably just the summer we kind of got to meet because of obviously it was warm so we got to meet outside um so I think probably some of those moments like when we were filming and I think I met Eve I think I met Eve before we did the filming with like the rest of us um but yeah probably I think my favorite episode was probably my favorite moment was probably just the first episode kind of I didn't really I knew you guys but I didn't really yeah and um I don't know I felt like you guys all kind of somewhat knew each other 
Cork mm. County Corla mm. and I was like just there and that no it was my first time getting to know you and that episode it was oh yeah it was like around International Women's Day and I, it was yeah. just I learned a lot that episode lovely um that was such a nice ending um Gabby do you want to count us out ask Gilga ask Gilga oh my year Amy um Sham and even them um, okay, Kerkler, uh, Gatana, when we on Tanov Oss an episode show, Augusta Surgum going into Tanov Oss Freshen. Um, La Nikela, a hin, a do, a tree. Slan! We hope you enjoyed our podcast. Also, you can read the entire transcript of every episode in the link to our Google Drive, which you can find on our Instagram. Once again, online youth information chat is live from 4pm to 8pm, Monday to Friday at ymca-ireland.net slash question or find YMCA at YI Young Voices. Every second Thursday we will release a new episode, but for now, slán!